Good morning, church. Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 19, verse 16b through 30. Please turn with me in your Bibles and stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Thank you, Stephanie. It is finished moves the heart of a Christian because of what it means. Some of you um, are here today considering the claims of Christ for the first time, and what I would like to do is try to show you what is one of the more compelling reasons for believing Christianity is true? And to do that, I want to I introduce to you the most prominent symbol of the Christian faith, the cross, the cross of, of Jesus Christ, the cross on which Jesus hung, shamed, though innocent, and said, it is finished. So the Christian symbol of the cross is, um, on one hand, not unique because every major worldview and religion has a symbol uh, that captures its history and its beliefs. So Buddhism has the wheel of Dharma, which represents the cyclical, unending nature of life, or Taoism, also in East Asia, very popular uh, in the regions we're working also, um, at least in the, the, more, uh, the larger cities. Um, Taoism has the yin-yang symbol, which you're probably familiar with, which 
simply illustrates that all things exist in some sort of contrary position, opposites, bad and good, um, light and darkness. Pastor Michael and I were talking about the, the, that symbol and what it means recently. Or even the river people, though not a world religion, the river people have a symbol uh, at the heart of their story. Uh, and in fact, in real life, they worship the trees, this particular group of three trees in their founding city, as they tell the story. And this tree in the middle, which you've seen pictures of, has a big, large red sash written around it, or a number of sashes that make it look like one large red sash around it. Um, you could think of Islam and its ancient symbol of the crescent moon, which represents sovereignty and destiny. Or Judaism has the Star of David, a symbol of hope and covenant promise among God's people. So Christianity is not unique in that it has a symbol. Every major world religion has a symbol. What is unique about Christianity, however, is that it did not start that way. In fact, no one in their right mind would have chosen this symbol to be this, the, to represent this, this life-giving claim of Jesus. No one would choose the cross. The early Christians, in fact, had to be careful and discreet because using the symbol of a cross too openly would surely invite more persecution and suffering on them. So in the catacombs, the early Christians uh, had on the walls a peacock, for example, that symbolized immortality, or a dove, which would symbolize peace. Uh, or an athlete's crown or victor palm, which would symbolize victory. Or the fish. The fish was also uh, symbolic for early Christians. You had to be in the know to understand the fish, but basically the letters that would spell fish in Koine Greek would make an acrostic, each of the letters standing for something, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. And you'd kind of know other people were with you, and you could connect with them and trust them if the fish symbol was circulated. But none of those stuck. The dove didn't, the fish didn't, not in the way the cross did. None of those became the prominent symbol of Christianity. In his book, On the Cross of Christ, John Stott writes, a cross as a symbol of the Christian faith is all the more surprising when we remember the horror with which crucifixion was seen in the ancient world. How could any sane person, any right-minded person, worship as God a man condemned as a criminal on a cross. The most humiliating form of execution. This combination, he goes on to say, death, this combination of death, crime, and shame put Jesus beyond the pale of respect, let alone worship. No one in their right mind would have chosen the cross as a symbol of Christian worship. And to illustrate this, John Stott reminds us of the second century graffiti found on the wall of a house in Rome. And, and this, is the, this is actually the first surviving picture of the crucifixion of Christ. And you can see the shame, the mocking, and the derision that's communicated in the image because the top of the figure is a, is a donkey's head, a, a jackass, a stubborn animal that can do very little. And so basically what's happening is the, the, the surrounding culture is saying, are you, you guys are a joke. You're crazy if you worship this man. Underneath it, it says, um, Alex Semenos, we'll just call him Alex. Uh, Alex worships his God. And it's a graffiti from the second century that mocks Christians for thinking something good happened 
worthy of worship and following and giving your life to at the cross. I think the fact that a cross became the prominent symbol of Christianity, if you're thinking about the Christian faith, I think the fact that a cross became the prominent symbol of Christianity in spite of ridicule and shame and repeated attempts of Christians to wisely distance themselves from it for fear of persecution has to say something about the truth that it represents. The cross, unlike any other image, beautifully captures the central claims of Christianity. That is why it stuck. The reason it sticks is because it's, it's central claim, the, the central claims of our faith are beautifully summarized in this symbol. And the Apostle John, in chapter 19, introduces to us the cross of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion. And from it, from this chapter, we're going to learn four things and I want to try to show you four things that John teaches that are in concert with, with the centrality of the cross for the Christian faith. Four, four thoughts that John uh, would have us, I think, to see. Number one, first of all, he, Jesus, bore the cross willingly. Look at verse 17. Chapter 19, verse 17 And think with me about this, this, first, this first central claim of the Christian faith. Jesus bore the cross willingly. The end of 16, so they took Jesus. Verse 17, they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So in Latin, it's Calvary. In Aramaic, it's Golgotha. In English, we translate it the place of the skull, all the same place, place of execution. It probably got its name from the appearance of the sort of the geography of that hill, maybe looked like a skull, or at some point in history had been named the place of the skull, matching that it was a good place to execute people, so it just stuck. And that's where they're headed. We've seen pre in previous Sundays the uh, Jesus being delivered over to Pilate to be crucified and all that led up to it. And now in verse 17 we read, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross. I wanna draw your attention to that line. I, that's the phrase that really has sort of captured my imagination in this, in this moment, bearing his own cross. According to the ancient author Plutarch, uh, as he describes crucifixion in that day, each criminal, as part of his punishment, would carry his cross on his back. So that was like part of the, that was, that was a significant um, public display of, of punishment. It was part of the retribution process for the criminal to bear his own cross beam. So we're talking about the top part of the cross, the, the beam that he would, his arms would eventually be stretched out on. He would carry that. He wouldn't carry both parts of the cross. If you've seen him in images carrying the whole cross, that's probably not accurate. He's probably just carrying the cross beam, 75 to 100 pound piece of wood that he would be strapped to that any criminal would carry. And it was designed to shame and, and to make a public statement. Um, what's interesting about this is that John says bearing his own cross without any other details. The other synoptics, Matthew, the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they write from sort of the same perspective. And they add that someone else helped Jesus carry his cross. Do you remember that? 
Who was that? Simon, right? So probably what's happened here, both, both accounts are accurate and true. Jesus has, has been bearing his own cross out to the gate of the city. The crucifixion is going to happen outside the camp, outside the city. Think Hebrews for a moment there. And Jesus is on his way out, the, 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 the whole group that's following with him and, and the other criminals, and he's bearing his cross. By the time he gets to the gate, he's absolutely exhausted. He's been scourged. That final scourging has already occurred between verse 16 and 17. And so he is scourged. He's beaten. He's, 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 you know, he, he's just abused to a bloody pulp. He's, car- he's probably exhausted by the time he gets to the city. Simon's coming back in the city. The, uh, in Mark's gospel, it tells us that. Simon's coming back into the city. That's, that's where he picks up Jesus' cross. What's really interesting, cross, what, what is interesting to me is that though that happened that way, John isn't really interested in pointing that out. John doesn't want to, John's not adding that feature to his story, not because it didn't happen, not because it's not true. Both stories are true and accurate, but what John wants you to see is not that Simon helped carry his cross. John, why didn't you include this? The brief answer is it would be distracting to his purpose. What John's trying to accomplish is a little bit different. It is appropriate to emphasize the passion and suffering of Christ, as we did last week, and as you will see that Simon in the narrative of the, of the other Gospels does. But, it, but it's also appropriate, as John does here, to let the emphasis fall on Jesus uniquely with resolute obedience to the Father and on your behalf, bears his own cross. It's, it's, a way of, of, it's a way of John reiterating his theme. Jesus is submitting himself to the sovereign hand of God. He's going to bear his own cross. You just think back to the gospel, of, through, the, through the gospel of John with me. The hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. Remember that? Like for the first half of the book, the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. But now the hour has come. So, so, the hour has come, so Jesus says things like this, leave Mary alone, she kept this precious oil for the day of my burial. The hour has come. Greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for his friend, or in a little while you will see me no longer. Jesus, what are you talking about? He's talking about bearing his cross. Or to Pilate, the last couple of Sundays we've seen uh, Jesus say uh, to, to Pilate, for this purpose I was born. For this purpose I came into the world. For what purpose, Jesus? Bearing his own cross. Or this great section we looked at last week in chapter 19, verse 11, when Pilate is telling him, look, you don't know who you're talking to. I am, I am in charge of you. I can either release you or... Cruise. No, 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 Jesus says. You're not in charge of me. You have no authority over me were it not from God the Father. What's Jesus doing? He's bearing his own cross. Jesus is, Jesus, and John wants you to stay focused on that. John wants you to see that. So yes, Simon helped him outside the gate, but that's not the point John is making here. John wants to say this, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross. He had been setting his face toward Jerusalem like a stone to go do this, and he's going to finish it. He's bearing his own cross on your behalf all the way to the end. And why did he do it? Why would Jesus bear this cross willingly? You know the answer to this already. Say it with me. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He loved. He loved so much. He had so much energy of affection in him that he, uh, that he is going to bear his cross all the way to the point of full and final death. Jesus was unflinching in his commitment to give himself in my place. That's what John wants me to see, that he bore the cross to the place of death. That's the first point. So one of the most important, significant claims of Christianity that you could ever really process, if you're thinking about the Christian faith, maybe you're even thinking about baptism and going public with loving Jesus through the waters of baptism. One of the most important things you could know is that Jesus made a sacrifice to make it possible for you to know God, love God, and live for God. And he did that by bearing a cross that you and I deserve. He bore it willingly on your behalf. Here's the second thing. Just to make it immensely clear, he died on the cross. He was fully dead. He was crucified. This isn't some sort of mythical story. We were talking in the hallway a few of us earlier in between services. This isn't just a fairy tale. Like, this really happened. He really died. He died on the cross as the true king. Look at verse 18. In a surprising economy of words, the apostle writes, there they crucified him. And he stops. He does not explain. In fact, none of the gospel writers give us the gory details of the act of crucifixion. They simply assume the horrors of this inhumane form of torture and murder or capital punishment, I guess in most cases. For Jesus, it was murder. Cicero calls it the most cruel and disgusting punishment devised. It was borrowed from the Persians and perfected by the Romans, and crucifixion was designed for the purpose of just prolonging the agony of this criminal's death. So having carried his crossbeam to Golgotha, Jesus would have been made to lie on his back, so he would have gotten there absolutely exhausted, having been scourged a second time, mocked, beaten, all of that's happened, and he would then be made to lie on his back on the ground so that that crossbeam would be the place where his hands, his wrists, probably here, not so much here, probably right in here somewhere, would be you know, a huge spike, six, seven, eight inches long, would go straight through there and, and, and attach his arms to the crossbeam. Then he would be hoisted up onto that central beam that would form the cross, probably not like this one with the top on it, at least not sticking up that tall. Um, I think a fair number of scholars think Jesus was, was crucified more so on the T, which was very popular in that time in that, that region. And then, so that cross beam would be hoisted up and attached to the main vertical beam, which was already in place. And they leave those vertical beams up wherever they were going to you know, make the crucifixion happen at this place of execution. So also to kind of prolong the agony and the pain of this, they would, about halfway up the beam, 
they would, uh, well, so Jesus, okay, so he's hoisted up and he's hung there and his legs would be crossed and then his feet would be pierced together with one, with one spike because there was only one place to drive that spike. So that's why you see the images like that. And then interesting, another interesting fact about the way they would often do this, about halfway up they would put, not all the time, but sometimes they would put a little seat like a step, uh, a little pedestal kind of seat, so that the body could, could find a place to rest. You know, that was not actually to help him. That seat was part of the devising of this plan to make it a horrible form of agony and suffering because what would happen is the person who was being crucified, would, his body just involuntarily would find that place of rest and he would rest there for a few minutes and then to get his breath back, right, he had to open his chest cavity to breathe. So he would pull himself up to try to breathe and the pain would be excruciating both on his feet and his wrists. He'd get breath and then back down he would go and up and down, up and down, over and over again. This exhausting, agonizing uh, thing would go on and on. And in fact, uh, we're told that it doesn't just happen for hours. For many who were crucified, they would rot in the sun for days, still alive. This might explain why the soldiers, just to be done with it, for Pilate's sake, and this whole affair, shove a spear into his side to just end it. I think, again, this is another compelling claim for Christianity. The, the, the apostles, the gospel writers, don't go into the gory details. They don't, go into the door, they don't go into the gory details because they don't want to be accused of fluffing up the story. Nothing else really needs to be said. Everybody knows what it means to be horribly crucified. So they just simply say, John says, there they crucified him. I think that lends to the authenticity and the reliability of Scripture. So John doesn't say much about the gory details. What he does want to, watch this, what he does want you to see, and look at this, there, verse 18, there they crucified him, same sentence, and with him, two others, one on either side, Jesus in the middle of them. Not only does this detail authenticate John's story that there were two others on that day in that place that anybody could verify who were criminals who were tried and executed in that way, but more than that, it's John's way of reminding us of Isaiah 53, that he would be, Jesus would be numbered among the transgressors. That the innocent one, the suffering servant of Isaiah, would be numbered among the criminals. And here's what that means for you. Listen, here's what that means for you. The innocent man hanging on the cross in the center so closely identifies with us in our fallen condition with the criminal nature of man that he's willing to be silently accused and executed and hang naked and innocent, naked though innocent, in front of the whole world in between those two thieves. He's, everybody walking by, he's one of them. That's... That's Jesus, listen, if you have recognized your play, yourself, if you, this is also what Christianity teaches, if you've recognized yourself as sinful and rebellious and hopeless and, 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 and even badness inside your heart, Jesus came to hang 
innocent on your behalf, as if you were up there, this great old Negro spiritual that says, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Were you there? To find yourself there, you find yourself on the sides and Jesus in the middle. He so fully and freely identified with the human condition that he was willing to, to suffer, though he reviled not in return. To be numbered among sinners. You should be glad this morning that he was numbered among us. Don't just think about the vile criminals that were on both sides, one of whom his heart began to warm. Maybe, maybe he's the Son of God. Don't just see yourself, you just, yeah, find yourself as needing Christ who came to hang in your place. Verse 19. Hmm. Pilate also wrote a sign, an inscription of some kind, and put it on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The public notice, no doubt, was designed to say, anybody else who wants to try this, don't. Only one emperor, no other kings will be tolerated, no insurrectionists in this town. The, pu the punishment of the crime would often be identified with the person on the cross. That's what happened here. But look at verses 20 and following. This is so good. Many of the Jews, because this was in a public place where it was near the city and it was able to be seen, saw the inscription because it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews found out about it and they, and they, they, they get on the scene. They say, don't, don't write the king of the Jews. That's not true. Just write this. He claimed to be the king of the Jews. Will you change it for us, Pilate, so it'll be accurate? Pilate says, I'm written what I've written. I'm done with this. What's so beautiful about this is that what Pilate is doing down here, yes, he is just like, and the Jews, they have no idea what's really happening. God is doing up here. He really is the king of the Jews. He really is the king. He really is the true king. So it stands written as it is in this amazing confirmation of who Jesus Christ really is. What John wants us to see is that Jesus really is the king of the Jews. What John wants us to see is that there's a good reason for why Pilate didn't strike through it and change it. Because the cross is a means of his exaltation, if I be lifted up. Remember that? Remember Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. What? That's a sovereignty claim. 
Like, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. That is a divine sovereignty claim. The cross becomes his place of exaltation. The cross is his way to glorification. His cross becomes his throne. F.F. Bruce, the noted uh, New Testament scholar, writes this. The crucified one is the true king, the kingliest king of all. He who was stretched on the cross turns an obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory and reigns from a tree. Even the sign that's written in three different languages becomes this amazing proclamation to the whole world. Watch, look at this. this is a gr- There's so many reversals happening here. Like what Pilate and Caiaphas do without even knowing it is they become prophets of the kingdom of Jesus by writing this sign and letting it be pronounced unwittingly and of course they don't believe in Jesus but these two men the two men most actively responsible for killing Jesus Caiaphas and Pilate end up furthering his kingdom as prophets without even knowing what they're doing yeah Aramaic Latin and Greek king of the whole world think about that like, think about that as, as we think about having a heart for the nations, people who don't know Jesus as king. So this charge that Jesus, this charge against Jesus that got him killed will immediately become a confession of truth for the apostles, for the early Christians, and for all believers down through the ages, maybe even for Kanye. We don't know for sure yet, but Kanye's new album is entitled, Jesus is King. Let's hope it's real. Let's let's hope that that's real because all of Christianity throughout the ages has confessed. In fact, this is like this is the this is the telltale. If, if you can't make this confession, if you can't make the confession that Jesus is Lord and King, you really can't be a Christian. You can't be a follower of Christ. John wants us to see that. John wants us to see that Jesus died on the cross to effect a new kind of kingdom and a new world, and he is the sovereign to whom everyone should submit. It doesn't look right. It doesn't look, it doesn't look sane. It, it, it's a crazy idea, but it's true. It's true. And so Jesus is the king, and that means he wants us to embrace him as king and to find life in the cross. And that instrument of death does bring life. So Paul can fast forward and the apostle Paul can say something like this, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Why? How? Because I've found life in faith in Jesus. I've found hope in Jesus. I have found a new world to live in, in Christ. He is the king. And this is one of the central claims of the Christian faith. Here's the third thing. And our time is just about gone. He fulfilled Scripture's promise of the cross. So the whole Bible is pointing to the cross. The whole Bible is pointing to Christ. That's why in verses 23 and 24, you read something like this. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. That is, they took his stuff, that not, just his, not just his garments, but the, probably his belt and his shoes. And his, so they took four things, divided them in four ways, but they kept the tunic in one piece. Uh, let's not tear that because it's in good shape. And they did this so as to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
However common it was for Roman soldiers to make light of those being executed, John has more in mind here. What does John have in mind? John has in mind that this is the sovereign will of God, that Jesus would bear our iniquities on the cross, that Jesus would die on the cross for us. This is it's really interesting. If you study John's gospel, you'll see this phrase, it is fulfilled, that scripture might be fulfilled. You'll see it increasing in its frequency. It's like, there's a, it's like the cadence of a drum that gets, you know, just, it gets a little bit faster, a little bit faster, a little bit faster, a little bit faster, and a little bit faster, all the way to this point. So chapter 12 to verse 9 to chapter 19, it is, fit, it is fulfilled, it is fulfilled, it is fulfilled. John, the pace keeps picking up. He keeps using this same line. It is, scripture is fulfilled. What's he doing? Repeatedly, like seven or eight times in four or five chapters, he keeps saying, it's as if John is saying this, listen, it's as if he's saying that the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is the most important promise God ever fulfilled. That's what John is saying. It is fulfilled. It is fulfilled. It is fulfilled. All right, and then I've got one other point I need to make, and I'll I'll try to wrap it up before I leave this third point. And then I actually have a fourth point. So, yeah, thanks for, yeah, trusting me with that. <laughs> uh, before we leave this third point, I've got one other thing I need to say. In addition to, in addition to this fulfilling, this being the greatest, pro- the cross being the greatest promise that God ever fulfilled, there's something else that's really cool about seeing what Jesus did for you here. He doesn't have anything left He had a belt, like I was just thinking about what, what, what would you want to, like the last, the last day of your life, you'd at least want to keep your, the, the possessions that you had, you know, when you, when you checked into the hospital or when you were going here, going there, like your pocket knife, your wallet, and your good belt, right? I mean, Jesus doesn't even get to keep that. He doesn't get to keep anything. He has no possessions left. He spent it all. Jesus holds nothing back. And what I want to say to you as a brother in Christ and as a pastor is, is, is you need to see that when they took and divided his garments, he ends up with nothing left, nothing left but giving himself on your behalf. And you and I are just like these little hoarders keeping our stuff back. We want to negotiate with Jesus. That is not healthy for you. It's not good for you. You don't need anything but Jesus. You can live without anything in this world but Jesus. He gave himself fully, completely. They gamble. Listen, the next time you think you need something to be happy, the next time you think you need stuff or clothes or new house or car or relationship or job promotion, the next, time, the next time you think you need that stuff to be happy, just remember, you don't need any of it. He spent all to give you the most satisfying, fulfilling exchange that could ever occur and that is in the set that's the fourth point the saving work of the finished work of jesus to rescue your soul those things are not going to make you happy those things are not going to solve your eternal the, the plan of your eternal home 
He completed the work of salvation on the cross. How do we know that? Because, it, because he makes this point. Twice he says, twice he says in verse 28 and verse 30, it is finished. And then he hangs his head and he fully, completely exhausts his life to make life possible for you. Jesus, knowing that was, all was now finished, verse 28, and to fulfill the scripture, said, I thirst. And some cheap wine was nearby, probably not the wine that would have dulled his agony that someone offers him on his way to the cross or closer to that, whatever moment that is prior to this. Probably two different wines being offered to him if you're thinking about Mark's gospel at all. He refuses that one because he doesn't want to dull the pain and the agony. He goes into the wrath of God, drinks the cup fully and finally. No help, no morphine, no Oxycontin, no nothing. Just takes the wrath of God in the midst of this agony. Here, they patronize him with a little drink and when he had received the sour wine, he said it is finished. It, this, this means at least two things. It means that the atonement was completed, fully paid. His life, death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf, it's a done deal. You cannot improve on it. It means that he finished the work he came to do. It also means there's a completeness about the saving work and life of Jesus, which nothing else in the world can compare to, to make you happy. And every other thing you look to, religion, legalism, self-righteousness, materialism, just make the list, none of it will satisfy you. Jesus is at the same time, I think, saying both, I've come and finished the work, it's done, it's complete, now I want you to live in it. I want you to experience the finished work of grace on your behalf. Like, it is finished should not just ring true to you that he came and did the job he was supposed to do to pay for your sins. It should also ring true to your, to your heart all week long that you're living out of a completed work of grace on your behalf, and that will change the way that you relate to your family and work, and neighbors. Jesus completed the work of salvation on the cross. And there's this beautiful line, and I'm, and I'm done. There's this beautiful line from P.T. Forsyth, uh, written over 100 years ago. Listen to this. And this is an invitation. So I'm inviting you to hear and believe the gospel this morning. Listen to this. Christ is to us just what his cross is. All that Christ was in heaven or on earth was put into what he did there. Christ, I repeat, is to us just what his cross is. You will not understand Christ until you understand his cross. If you've not yet embraced Jesus and his cross on your, in your place, on your behalf. I want to I pray for you this morning. And if you have trusted Christ, 
I also want to pray for those of you who want to grow in your faith. Would you uh, just take a minute and let's, let's pray, and then we're going to sing. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, but you're interested, you're intrigued, you're, you're thinking, man, I, I want to know more about this cross. Why, why not pray something like this? Lord, help me to see the amazing mystery of the cross of Jesus, that out of death could come life. that I was guilty, but he ransomed me. That God, you were willing to make sin. You were willing to pour out on him and make him the bearer of sin so that I might discover you and your righteousness. That there's this great exchange. I wanna understand the exchange that Jesus made for me on the cross, the transaction of grace. I want to understand that. I want to know it more. Just ask the Lord to help you see that by faith right now. To see the mystery of the cross. If you're already a follower of Christ, Lord, we pray that our lives would be marked by such allegiance to the cross of Christ. That we could say with Paul, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. In fact, the best parts of my life come out of the growing understanding of the gospel and, and, the, and the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus for me. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I want to live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Lord, help us to walk. Help us to, to walk in, in a way that would be different this week because of the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.